But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that is why uh, I, I wore my shirt today, uh, my sinners only shirt, is because this is actually where that phrase comes from. This is where we pulled it from and decided to stick it on a shirt is this, this actual uh, text right here. Now, I would venture to guess, as diverse as we are, different backgrounds we have, different you know, kinds of people, upbringing, places that we came from, that there's this, this one thing that we all have in common that we hate, taxes. <laughs> like, am I right or am I wrong? Does anyone in here like taxes? Right? So like, so like, no one probably likes tax. How many of you um, like to do your taxes when it's tax time? It's coming, right? Uh, how many of you like to pay your taxes, like write out the check or whatever it is you do? How many of you love all the stuff that your tax dollars go to? This is the worst part of it to me, I think. Because there's some stuff that's justified that I know I should be paying into that's for the greater good, but some of the stuff that they choose to put it on, uh, no. Right? And yet, it, and yet it goes there. Uh, how many of you like tax collectors? This one's a little different, right, for, for you and I. Probably more of an abstract concept because we, we don't have to meet the people that take our money and our tax dollars. Like we have this thing called the internet, you know what I mean? We have online uh, banking and online transactions and uh, all the fleecing that goes on goes on online. So like we don't have to know these people. They're not people that are going to necessarily, like, back in the day, show up at your door, knock on your front door looking for their, their $2, you know what I mean? Like, looking for their money, right? So, so we don't really have to know them, but back then, they did. They had to know these people. They had to know the tax collector. That guy was showing up at their door regularly looking for his money, okay? And, and this is really uh, where we find uh, Matthew. So, so first, we really need to talk about, like, none of this is really going to matter that much. There's not going to be any weight to this if we don't understand, like, the deal with a tax collector, like, what the problem uh, really was. So we need to talk a little bit about that because everybody in life, in, in Jewish culture in that day was disgusted, disgusted with tax collectors, Okay. These guys were so despised that, as you can see here and in other places, they got their own category. You had sinners and tax collectors. So, so just, just think about what this means, that they got their own category apart from sinners. Like, you, you, you didn't have sinners and thieves. You don't have sinners and adulterers. You don't have sinners and rapists. You have sinners and tax collectors. That's pretty wild, okay? Um, if you were a tax collector during Jesus' time in Jerusalem, you were basically the worst of the worst, and here's the two reasons why, all right? Number one, because they were working for the enemy. Who was the enemy? Rome. Rome owned Jerusalem at this point. They had come in, they had taken over, and Jerusalem and the Jews were oppressed by Rome. Rome was taking them over. And, and, and the Jewish tax collectors were working directly for these guys to help prosper the oppressor, right? So that's like, that's like problem 
number, number one. Uh, the Jews were under Roman occupation, and because of this, the majority of the taxes, the, the Jews' hard-earned money, was going directly to those who oppressed them. And their own countrymen were, were making sure it got there. Right? Number two, the reason they were so bad is because they, the Jewish tax collectors themselves, were personally profiting by working for the enemy. These guys were also like profiting off of um, what they were doing for Rome. So the Romans weren't like holding a gun to anybody's head back then, any Jew's head, and saying, you're going to come be a tax collector for us. Like that's not how it went. They weren't like being threatened, like we're going to kill you and your family if you come do this job for us. No, no, they were actually actively pursuing and determining to land these positions as tax collectors for a source of income. For personal gain. And so these guys would actually land these jobs. This is how it would work by bidding on them. So Rome would actually come forward to the Jews and say, we need another tax collector. Okay. And then the people that were interested in that job would show up one day like a job fair and they would candidate for that job. They would actually actively pursue getting that job. So they would say something like, if you hire me, I can get X amount of money. For you guys, right? So it was absolutely nuts. They were actually, am I good? Are we good? Oh, thank you. I'm going to slap it more than once. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, so what these guys were doing is they were actually jockeying for position based on how well they could screw their own people to profit Rome. I, I'm just going to say it as strong as it is. That's why it was so bad. So like, can you say traitor? like with a capital T. These people were straight up traitors. Um, and because this was truly about who could betray and exploit their people the best and the most, they were hated the best and the most by their own people. And, and, and it was you and I would do the same thing. And so it's kind of like after hearing just, just this, it's like, how do you like Matthew now? You know what I mean? We can, we can start to like get, the, get the understanding of why Jesus, when he brought him into the fold, that the other misfits said, you can't bring a misfit like that in here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the other misfits had a problem with Matthew because this is what he was doing to them, right? Crazy stuff. And, and really, isn't it just like us when you just consider for a minute like what must have been going through the other disciples' minds when Jesus invited Matthew in? Like, like, like we're, we're typically most harsh and most merciless and most skeptical towards those who sin in ways that we don't. Right? Like, like as bad as you and I might have been, as hellbound as we might have been in however we manifested our sin, we can always look at someone else and go, at least I didn't do that, and feel better about ourselves. You know what I mean? Jesus doesn't do that. Okay? Which brings us to the text. Verse 9. If I can find it. Jesus passed on from there, again, where he healed the, the paralytic, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. Here's nugget number one, okay? Jesus saw Matthew. I mean, that may sound simple, that may sound stupid, but that's a big deal. Jesus saw Matthew, and he, he noticed him, he paid attention to him. He considered him. He saw him. 
He saw him. And, and it's not just that, that Jesus obviously was the only one who saw him because everybody else knew who their tax guy was, right? This dude sitting in a booth in public. Um, they, they, they were well acquainted with who their tax person was. But it's the way that he saw him is the difference in what's so amazing. That's, that's, that's what's so remarkable is, is how Jesus saw him. The fascinating thing is that Jesus saw him not as a disease, but as a candidate for mercy and blessing. So this is, this is pretty radical stuff. Like Jesus didn't see him as an object of hate and disdain that was unredeemable like other Jews did, because they actually had a saying in Jew Jewish culture at that time. It was understood among the Jews during Jesus' day that a tax collector was unredeemable. Unpart that's why they got their own category. Like someone who sinned in these other ways, they, they might, Jesus, like, like God may able to be able to have mercy on them somehow in some way on some level. But these guys over here, they're gone. They're lost. There is no hope for these guys. But Jesus looked at Matthew and did not see a guy that had no hope, that was unpardonable, and that was unredeemable. He saw a guy that was very redeemable, right? More than that, Jesus saw him for some reason as an earthly candidate to represent him and his gospel. I mean, what's he calling him to, right? And so Jesus sees him in a way that nobody else did, and then he invites him to follow him, and Matthew does. So this is kind of weird. Like, we don't see any fight. We don't see any wrestling. We don't see any deliberation. We don't see any questions being asked. Jesus, like, sees him, invites him, and Matthew follows, which is kind of weird. Now, the reason that, I, that I, I believe it went down so easy is because it's very likely Matthew already knew, just like all of Jerusalem, who Jesus was. He already knew. He would have probably heard some of the sermons. He might have even seen some of the miracles, but he certainly heard about them. He heard about the crazy stuff that was going around that was like, un, uh, like just, again, remarkable, that, that was going on around Jesus that he was doing. He would have been aware of his teachings, the miracles, the crazy stuff, and as, as such, probably would have already had his eyes on Jesus as well. So Jesus has got his eye on him, and Matthew probably already had his eye on Jesus. And so when Jesus walks up to him and taps him, he's in. Like, he, he's just straight up in. It's, all, it's almost like Matthew was hoping for it. Almost. Right? Like, he, like, his evaluation of what's going on with Jesus has caused him to already determine that this was something he did not want to miss out on. So he follows him. He follows him. But again, that's not the remarkable part. The remarkable part isn't that Matthew up and followed Jesus. The remarkable part is that Matthew wasn't unpardonable to Jesus. That's the remarkable part. He wasn't unredeemable. He wasn't too far gone. In fact, you might, you might say he was just the type of guy, just the type of misfit that Jesus was looking for. Because Jesus knows what he's doing when he picks his team. Like every time, right? So, so, so Jesus saw him not as a tax collector, but as a person with value and worth. And, and I think it's okay for me to probably um, use this as an example, even though you're sitting there, Mike, uh, but I remember last year when we were getting ready to take a run at this warming center thing, there was a lot of people, including even me, that were skeptical about some stuff, were skeptical even about um, um, just what we were about to put into this ministry. Because if you know, uh, a lot of the people coming in are there because they put themselves there. A lot of what they've experienced and where they're at is self-induced. 
It's from bad decisions and even ongoing bad lifestyles. And so it's hard. There's a, there's a real skepticism in it, and it's hard to completely validate or feel good about going into this thing because of the problems that some of us already have with this community. And I remember halfway through the season, you walking up to me and looking at me one day and going, I can't believe I used to look at these people the way I used to look at them. See, see what Mike experienced by, by being around these people turned his skepticism into a soft heart and looking at them not like homeless people, but people that have value and have worth. And this is what we're talking about here with Christ. This is exactly how Jesus looked at people. He didn't look at Matthew and say, tax collector. He looked at Matthew and said, child of God, born in the image of God, I have something for you to do. And, and, and honestly, people, is that not why, like, what we're all doing in this room right now? <laughs> like, is that not why we're here um, worshiping the God of the universe? Is because he looked at us like people. He didn't see us like everybody else in our lives ever saw us. And he said, I got something for you to do. It's like, really? Like, you're going to tap me for your team? I mean, think about it. Like, he had all Jerusalem on the backstop to pick his team. Remember recess? Like everyone would go on to the backstop and you had two captains. and they, Like this is always how I picture it. And Jesus has got like an infinite number of like people on the backstop. And he's walking, he's walking up to people that no one else would, would tap and put on his team. And he's saying, I got something for you to do. Um, and I pray, I, 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 I'm just amazed. I worship him because he's this way. Because that's the only reason I, I, like, I have any value in what I do. It's because he's given it to me. He's, he's, a, he's picked me and said, you're going you're gonna to be on my team, and I, I've got some stuff for you to do. And it's like, are, are you serious? Or like, are you sure? Like, do you know who I am? And, he, and people, he does. He knows, he knows who you are better than you know. And yet he picks us. It's an insane thing, and we see this going on here with Matthew. So look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And so Matthew and Jesus begin their relationship together by doing what all good friends do. The most important thing comes first. Food. Like we eat together, right? Like that's what, that's what friends do. Now, Matthew's account just kind of like has them like transported to some table with some food. Like just, just a table and food, right? But like if you read Luke's account, and this is one of the only um, maybe extras that Luke puts in than Matthew. If you read Luke's account, chapter 5, verse 29, Luke tells us that it was Matthew who threw the party at his house for Jesus and invited all his buddies. It's an interesting thing. Um, it actually says, and Levi, which is Matthew, this is Luke's account, made for him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. So Matthew takes Jesus home, like, like right away. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. I mean, this explains why there was a cloud, a multitude of tax collectors present, right? Because, I mean, if you were a tax collector in those days, who were your friends if you had them? Other tax collectors. Those are the only people that would have anything to do with you. And so Matthew goes, throws this party, and he's like, i got to invite some people because it's a party. It's a celebration. Who do I got? And he pulls out you know, his, 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 his list on his phone, and they're all tax collectors. 
And so he's like, come on over, we're going to eat. You know, I got, you're not going to believe who I have here. And, and they all show up, and, and there are some people that are, other people that are sideways, non-tax collectors, but they're not, you know, um, they're not great people, okay? And they're, they're all just chilling together. If you don't know what it means when it says in the Bible, like, they reclined at table, that didn't mean, that, like, that there was some kind of a, a stiff, like, all, all, all about just eating thing going on. If you reclined, like, you were letting your hair down, so to speak. Like, 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 it was a celebration, it was comfortable, it was informal, and there was love and unity going on when you reclined at a table. And so that's what's going on here. And, and this is where the problem arises. <laughs> this is where the dilemma is. Because back in the day, if you sat down and you ate with someone, if you reclined with someone at the table, that meant that they were in. That meant that you were in with them and that they were in with you. And that's exactly what's going on here. So, so it, it, it meant that they were all accepting each other. They, 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 it meant that they all belonged in the presence of each other, right? In the company of each other. And, and this is what Jesus is found doing with Matthew and his buddies right out of the gate. And this is why the religious police sit up and take notice and show up to harass the party, right? They come to crash the party. You guys remember that from high school, what a bummer that was when you were at a party having a great time with all these people and the police showed up or someone yelled cops and everyone went out the back door, the side door, you know, the trap door. Uh, like it was, they came to crash the party, right? Kick some butt, take some names, you know, uh, make some par parents very upset with their kids. Um, and these, guys, these, these religious police are doing that. They're coming here to crash this party, all right? Because the act of Jesus reclining and eating with Matthew and his band of misfits meant that Jesus accepted them and approved of them. It was an expression of belonging, friendship, reception, and herein lies nugget number two for you and I. Okay, number one is that Jesus saw Matthew. Number two is this, I, I, and I know I've said this before in here and I'm going to say it again. If you do not have any ongoing connections or relationships in your life, with non-believers, fix it. Fix it. And I know that's, got, that's got, like maybe initially going to sound wrong to some of you, but I promise you it's not. Read your Bibles. If you don't have any ongoing connections and relationships in your life with non-believers, fix it. Like now. Like followers of Christ do not exist on earth to separate or isolate or segregate or hide out by sticking to their own kind only. That's not what the church is given to do. According to Jesus in John 10, his sheep go in and out to find pasture. They go in and out. And we go out, people, as gospel carriers. That's where pasture is for us and the rest of the world. Okay? Representatives of the gospel of grace to sinners. So it goes without saying, if you're never around any, how in the world can you be accomplishing what Jesus has left you here for? You have to be around them. We are called to be intentional in having relationships and connections with unbelievers, not so that we can become like them, because I know the danger. I know why we're all going, well, I know why I don't, because, you know, it's too, it's too risky. It's too dangerous, right? So, so like, like we're, we're not to be around them so that we can become like them, but so that we can dispense the love and heart of Christ to them. To them. We can't do it if they don't know us, if we don't know them, if we are never around each other. So, so the influence 
The point of influence relationally is to go from us to them, not them to us. Okay? We, we are to be in the world, but not of the world, right? Which means in the midst of them, we need to be around them, but not like them. And we can do it. With the power of the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, the transforming work of that, the armor of God, which we all suit up with every day, right? This is why the armor of God exists in our scriptures, so that we can put it on to go out among the world, to go out among the people who do not yet know him and come back okay. That's why it's there, right? Um, what does this look like in your life? It, it's, it's, so, it's so much simpler than I think we make it. So like I get my hair cut like once a month and there's a Christian lady that I used to go to church with that I've known that opened a barbershop right down the road from our house, right, where we lived. But I don't go there. I found a dude one day in Bend that cuts hair. And we had a lot of earthly things in common like music and stuff like that, style and bands we used to listen to and stuff. So I found this dude two years ago. And I still go to this guy every single month. Even though I could save a ton of gas and a ton of time and go right down the, the road to this Christian gal who does fine with hair. This is, a, this is a simple, practical way that we can make this happen. I don't know if your tattoos are the same way. And the beautiful thing about a barber or a tattoo is that you're in their chair for an hour or two. Like, there's nowhere they can go. And so the conversation's going to happen, and it's not, it's not just going to get cut short. And just last week, I went in and got my hair cut. His name is Jordan, because I want you to pray for him. This is the foulest dude you will ever meet. I have, like, I thought I used to be foul. I've never, I've, I didn't know that you can invent all the words that are available to us and put them in such a way that could be so much worse than I've ever used them. This dude is nasty. And he is straight up honest the way he talks. And yet, I know that I'm to strive with this guy. I continually, at times, get to share with him why I am who I am. And it's because of Christ. And he listens. So I go in last week, and uh, I'm like, what's up, dude? What's been going on in your life? Because it's a month between the times that I see him. And he, and he goes, my, do my dog just died. And he starts crying. Like this dude, he ha he's never had kids. He's an older guy. Him and his wife are very, they're just non-kids. So their dog's their kid, and he lost his, kid, his dog, and he starts crying. He, he said, this has been the worst week of my life. He says, I don't, I, I, there was one point this week when I didn't know if I could go on, if I wanted to live without my dog. Ding, 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 ding. I got something to talk about. I got something to share with you. And I did. And he listened. And I saw him become humble. Like, I, I even saw some of his choice of words and language clean up a little bit. Like the dude was broken and humble. And I go to leave after I pay him. And I walked over and I stuck my hand on his chest over his heart. And I said, I'm going to pray with you. And I've never seen someone look so scared in their life. The dude just like, oh, this can't be happening. He just froze. His eyes got big. And I prayed for him. And afterward, he started crying right when I finished the prayer. And he came around the chair from where he was at. And he just gave me the biggest bear hug. And I know that one reason for it is because someone just took time to listen and to care and to share hope in his time of need. But I, I believe the other reason why this dude kind of fell apart is because I took him before the Father, and he ain't used to that. In fact, it's probably a place he thinks he can't go. Like, he's not allowed there. 
and someone just brought him there. <laughs> and, and it was such a powerful moment. This is why I have non-believers in my life wherever I can. That's why. It's the intentionality of what they need and what we have. We are not here to isolate, segregate, separate. Do not hide out. That is not why God has left the church on earth. We are here with the window that we have, the time that we have to share the glories of Christ to the nations, to call all the sheep home. And there's so many just simple ways. It, it, it could be where you shop. It could be where you get your hair cut. It could be where you get your car done. Think about it. Because what do we do? The first thing a Christian does is go, I'm going to go support a Christian business, which is cool. I get it. Like, I get it. But, the, but there's some times when we can do the exact opposite, and we need to think about that. Make those connections, form those relationships. Pay attention to where you go and why you go there. Jesus did. Jesus was extremely intentional with where he went and who he hung around. And I want to be like that. All right. Now, now, now we're really in trouble with time. So, back to the narrative. The cops show up, right? And the Pharisees show up. They crash the party. They start the interrogations. They're like, kind of like, what, like, what's going on here? Like, don't you realize how bad this looks? <laughs> like, what, what you guys are doing right now? Do, do you know how much trouble you're in? Like, this is unacceptable, what you guys have going on. It's all about appearance for them. It's all about appearance for these guys, right? And to them, appearance was all about association. Goodies stay with goodies, and baddies stay with baddies, right? Um, uh, because after all, that's what God would want is for us good people to stay with good people and bad people to stay with bad people. And little did they know that God is the one in the middle of this thing. He's the one in the middle of this crowd, right? Like, like the party's for him. And so God speaks. Here's what they're saying to the disciples. They're not saying it to him, but God knows. And God speaks. Verse 12, right? Where are we again? Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We love this, don't we? We love this phrase. I love this phrase. It has so much meaning to us that have been saved from so much, right? And, 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 and really, brothers and sisters, what, what, what this is saying in another way is that the church of God is not, this is not a club for the holy. This is a hospital for the helpless. And I don't know if you know it, but I know it. The church of God is a hospital for the helpless, not a place for the holy. I'm, and, and I'm going to let you in on something. The church is made up of sinners only. Sinners only, right? Spiritually sick only. Because Jesus came for sinners only. Salvation is for sinners only. Heaven and the eternal glorious kingdom of God is for sinners only. Now, I do want to clarify this statement because it can be controversial and people can look a little sideways, which is actually why we put it on a shirt. We actually want the conversation to happen no matter how it starts, right? Yeah, but I do want to say that and clarify, but by what we mean at the door by sinners only, um, because there's going to be people that uh, uh, attempt to use it or misuse it for their own twisted means, is what Jesus means here by it. That's what we mean by it. So, so, so that those who know, who know that they're sinners are who he came for. That's implied in this text. 
He knows, Jesus already knows that none are righteous, no, not one. So he's not saying some of you are righteous and some of you aren't, and I just came for the ones who aren't. No, it's implied. Those who know of their spiritually sick condition are the ones he came for. Not the ones who don't think they have one. Right? So, so, so sinners only does not mean I can sin, I can do whatever the heck I want, and I can feel good about it. It's not, it's not even going to bother me. Because after all, Jesus is pro-sinner, right? And I am one. So sinners only, bro. And I've heard that nonsense. If you think that way, you're, you're, you have not been born again. If you think that Jesus is cool with that and you have no conviction of sin, if you have no hate for your sin, if you have no desire for holiness and sanctification, you have not been born again. You just think you have. Someone who is experienced and has dwelling in them the Holy Spirit does not think like that. It is contrary to the gospel of Christ and the grace of God in the believer. Contrary. So I just want to make sure we know that. Sinners only um, means only those who know and have a problem with their sin condition are able to know him. That's what what it means. And in this, we are being reminded once more of the upside-down kingdom of of God, the upside-down kingdom of Christ, that being that all that he was and all that he said and established is quite the opposite of what we think is true and right. Right? Like the Pharisees here. That good people go to be with God and bad people go to to be in hell uh, is, is how we think it works, but it doesn't. Like, because none, none, none of us are good, uh, but some of us think we are. And, and, and Jesus is continually exposing the truth that all are sick, and only the ones who know it have a shot at knowing him. In, in other words, hell is going to be largely populated by those who thought they were good, while heaven will be only populated with people who knew they weren't. That's the difference. Jesus' analogy here, just like always, is perfect. Don't you love this analogy? The sick and a doctor. We can all relate to this, right? Some of us are still dealing with this stuff and coming out of this stuff, and I just had it you know, a couple weeks ago, right? Um, hate it. But, but just think about this. Perfect analogy. And, and people say that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor, right? How many times in your life have you ever felt perfect, like physically, normal, good, healthy, and then thought to yourself in that moment, i got to go to a doctor and see what's wrong? You know, that's, that's how stupid it is. But this is what he's putting forth. Like, this is, this is like what he's saying. No, only, only when something is off physically, right, is when we do that. Salvation, heaven, the gospel, and Jesus are only for those who know there's something off inside of them because only then will they seek out the one who is on, the one who has the cure, the one who has the remedy. And again, that's why I'm here. I'm not here because I, I, I was able to uh, clean myself up for a couple of weeks and make myself presentable so that God would receive me. You know what I mean? I was here because I had to cry out one day in my complete depravity, like the reality that everything I ever touch, I mess up. Everybody I ever know, I break because I love myself more than everybody else. And I finally came to the conclusion that sin in me is the problem. And I couldn't do anything for myself but go to a doctor to go to a sin doctor. Someone who could cure me of it. That's why I'm here. And you can imagine what's going on in the heads of these Pharisees right now here in this state. Just this one statement. Such a weird thing for these guys to hear, if you can imagine it. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus isn't quite done yet, right? Verse 13, he goes on to say, go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Jesus want, right? What does Jesus want? Isn't this what we really all want to know? Isn't this really what we all need to know? What does God want? What does Jesus want, right? Well, here, it's clear. Mercy. Mercy. And it's like, wait, like, what, like, what is that? Like, he wants us to have mercy on him, right? Uh, no, no. He, he, he wants to have mercy on us so that we can then go forth and have mercy on others. That's what this is. God wants to do that. These guys are too self-righteous to do because they've got it covered. He wants to have mercy on them, and he wants them to experience his mercy first, right? But they don't need his help. They don't need his their whole dilemma. They have no conscious need at all whatsoever of a rest, of a rest in the mercy of God, only a need to work for their own merit, to earn it. But they need it. They, they need to receive the mercy of God so that they may see straight. And, and, and as a result, find joy in loving people who are not like them. This is mercy. In a sense, Jesus is saying, you guys are up there in your temple, right, together, all of you together, tucked away from the world in a holy huddle, doing holy things, feeling good about yourselves, thinking that it's getting you God points when the game is down here. It's actually down here. This place you came to crash is actually where the field is. You think that's the stadium up there where your sacrifices are going on? The stadium's here. The game is being played here. It's, it's the exact opposite. Like, you're not even on the field. And not only are you not doing what God desires, you're looking at what God desires and you're calling it bad. You're actually calling what God calls good ugly. That's why you're crashing this party. I mean, this gives us a lot to think about, doesn't it? It's completely the opposite of, of humanly speaking, naturally, what we perceive is right as religious people and as sinful religious people. It's the opposite. And, 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 and because of that, I, I get it. I get that it's easier and cleaner to do religious acts of devotion to God in my little space that doesn't involve others. It's easier for me to be in my office putting together a nice little sermon for you guys and feeling good about it because I'm doing this huge God thing than it is for me to actually be in the presence of people that don't think like me or do life like me and that are hurtful and often sinful. But that's where God says the field is. That's where the field actually is, right? Mercy, love, compassion, kindness, patience, forgiveness, all those fruits that, that we hear about that are very Jesus, that are very Christian, do you know what they all have in common? They're relational. They require a relationship. <laughs> you don't do those things in private. You don't do those things alone. They require relational engagement with imperfect people to walk in every one of those fruits. Every one of them. And I, and I don't believe it to be a coincidence, like I said when I started, that we're in this text, that this is the text that come up, because in less than a month, people, our Sunday morning worship services in this room are going to change. They're not going to look the same. There's going to be people that are staying as a result of the warming center and the ministry we have that are going to be coming in here, that are going to be trickling in here and finding their way in here to be warm for another hour and a half. 
Praise God they're going to hear the gospel during that hour and a half, but they're coming in here. And we all saw it last year. And it was hard for some of us. Like, it was a challenge. In fact, we've lost people. I'll just say it like it's not a secret. We have lost people that no longer go to this church because of that. Because of the messiness that goes on. But it's coming in about a month. And I know that we all have our thresholds. And I know that we shouldn't be approving of all the disruptions and everything that goes on in here. But we're going to need to respond to those things in light of how Jesus responded to those things. We need to have our heads on straight, biblically, when this thing goes down. Right. So essentially what Jesus goes on to do here, verse 13, backside of verse 13, is, is give these guys, he gives these guys homework. That's kind of funny. <laughs> you know? Like, like he says to them, go and learn what this means. That's a, that's a great statement. And, and, and they can. Uh, because what he, what he says next is found in their scriptures that they're supposed to be experts in. Right? Like he quotes from Hosea 6.6 6 here. That's what he does. Like they should have known this, you know. Um, and, and he's quoting from it to make known to them that what they are seeing him do is not new. It's old. It's not some new thing that he's coming up with. It's something that God has already spoken to them about what he desires and what he doesn't desire, right? It's not wrong, but it's right. Mercy, not sacrifice. Even though Jesus, of course, would go on to perfectly walk in and fulfill both for you and I, which is why we're actually here. The perfect once-for-all sacrifice that he did. But, of course, these guys don't get it, right? They, they, they always get the, the do part, but never the done part, right? This is what religious people do. It's, it's, it, 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 it's never, oh, it's done. It's always, nope, i got to do, Right? They, they always get the work for it part, but never the rest in it part. And this is the difference in what Jesus is saying between mercy and sacrifice, ultimately. Uh, because they're, they're, they're good, again, in their own minds, they got this thing. They, they don't have a problem. They don't need to try to do something different than what they've always done or what they're doing. Mercy, not sacrifice. That's what God desires. And of course, because this is what pleases God to come out of him, this is what pleases God to come out of us. Mercy, not sacrifice. I think it's clear in our scriptures and the teachings of Christ that man's greatest obstacle to salvation is not worshiping a statue. It's not even an excessive love for the world or a hate for others or even great riches or money. But the greatest obstacle to salvation is self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if you look at the bulk of his teachings throughout all the Gospels. That's his emphasis. That's the biggest wall for anybody to break through is a need for a savior. This means that like, like man's greatest blinder, biggest obstacle to Christ is self-righteousness. And it is because it gives us the impression, it gives us the sensation of being right while continuing to be completely wrong in what God wants. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. Now, we need to close this thing. Um, and I want to close it in Luke 18. So why don't you guys turn there real quick. Luke 18. 
two books to the right, chapter 18. Or you can just listen. I'm going to read it. What we find here, and I will give you the verses, is Jesus reiterating this truth in this error of who God is for and what he wants, but this time in a parable. In a parable. Not so oddly enough, a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Right? And so, verses 9 through 14 says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in, listen to this phrase, themselves, trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give uh, tithes on all that I get. So, homie comes into the temple. He separates himself from everybody else because he's better than everybody else, but he, he also positions himself so that he can be seen and noticed. For all we know, this dude's even talking really loud right now with this prayer, right? So this, this guy is grandstanding. And, and, and he, prays for two, he prays two things. To the God of the universe, he prays two things. Number one, uh, just letting God know that he's better than other people. And, and number two, letting God know why he's better than other people. This is the two things he's doing here. It's crazy. Right? 13, the tax collector, listen to this part, standing far off. So this dude, this dude ain't in a position where people can even notice him. He's not coming to the front. This dude would be like in the shadows, in the corner of the room, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He, he, he's, he's in such a, a state of, of the knowledge of his own sinfulness and depravity that he can't even look in the direction of the one that he's praying to. And he beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, our perception, the religiosity that exists in us, like of uh, the self-righteousness, the devout, uh, committed religious um, tendency that we have uh, as beings is, is upside down. It is off in light of what truly is. And because most of us in here this morning, I, I believe probably most of this room, <clears throat> would consider ourselves believers, people that have been born again, saved by the grace of Christ uh, through faith, um, um, love something like this, don't we? I, I love this parable. Like, I look at it often, I think about it often, like, I, I completely love this parable, right? Like, like, we as people who have seen Jesus as our only hope can identify with the tax collector because he's the underdog. He's the one who's not supposed to go home justified, according to men, right? So, like, like how many of you feel good when you read a narrative like this? Like, it makes me feel good when I read a narrative like this. It's a great underdog story, and we're suckers for those because we were one. We were one. But not only that, if you're like me, we also love sticking it to the man. You know what I'm saying? 
Like, I love sticking it to the man. Right? Like, we love seeing those who oppress others and condemn others and look down their nose at others get their comeuppance. My grandma used to say that. When we'd, she, we'd go to play a card game, she'd be like, you ready for your comeuppance? I'm like, what the, like, do I need a translator? Like, what are you talking? She, she would say comeuppance. Like, but we love to see these people who think they're so much better than everybody else when, when justice actually happens. You know what I mean? And so that's another reason why I think we, we love this parable. And so I'm, I'm kind of like, thank you for this parable, Jesus. Like, every time I see it, thank you for showing us who the baddie is and the goodie is. And that's exactly when we fall into our error, is in what I just said. That's exactly when we fall into our error. Because I can guarantee you that on some level, as I read through that parable just now, you guys said about the Pharisee the same thing he said about the tax collector. I know I do every time I read it. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. <laughs> that I'm not like that guy. Like when we, read, when we read our Bibles, we're always looking to the party, the example, the character that we want to identify with, right? And that's valid for us to do. Like, like it's real here too. Like if you've been saved by Christ, like, yeah. But, but, but even so, there is no validity as Christians for us to now think that we're better than anybody. Like Christ has saved us from that, not to that type of thinking, right? We're not better than anybody now that we are children of the God of the universe, right? See, see, Jesus is always one step ahead of us in that which he's teaching on regarding the constant reminder of our own depravity, even still, e even still. He never lets us get away completely innocent because we're not. And because this is true, this paradox, like, like this parable, like most, is a paradox. It's a paradox. If we're reading it right, it's first... A truth exposing the Pharisee's self-righteousness. And second, a truth exposing ours. All in one. All in one. Even still. Which upon revelation should cause us to go back to the presence of God with the same posture and heart as the tax collector to admit our sin and plead his mercy. We're back in his seat now. Because of how we look at that guy. Right? But, and, and so it may be helpful for us to remember this here. When Jesus says to the Pharisees, back in Matthew in our text, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's immediately rebuking their blindness toward their own sinfulness, but he's also making a declaration that includes them. There's also an invitation in what he's saying to them, because they are sinners too. They're just a different breed. They're just a different kind. They just, they just sinned differently. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He is really hard because of the self-righteous stronghold on religious people, harder than anyone else. But you know what? There's sinners that need to be saved too. And who was the last misfit that Jesus ever tapped for his team? A guy named Saul of Tarsus, who, who considered himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he wasn't a level one Pharisee. He was a level two Pharisee, right? Like this dude was not junior varsity, he was varsity at his religiosity and his self-righteousness. So much so that he, that he, that he was bent on, on wiping out the people of God, the church. He was a persecutor of the people of Jesus Christ. This dude was a Pharisee. 13 of the books, maybe 14 if you want to count Hebrews, most of our New Testament written by this dude. 
that God saved. It's an amazing thing. And this, this, dude, this dude was so, uh, so, so blind and so right in his own eyes that he persecuted the people of Jesus. But because God desires, ready? Mercy, not sacrifice, he caused Paul to experience some. You know what I'm saying? Like, 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 like the mercy of God slapped Paul so hard that this dude would never be the same and he would never look back. Ever. Because of the mercy of God. So praise be to God that he saves Pharisees too. And here's my point, and here's the lesson from Matthew this morning to us, brothers and sisters. Salvation, hope, the kingdom of God is for sinners only. It doesn't matter how we sinned or who we were or what we did or how far down we went or how pretty and clean our sinning was. The gospel is for all who need it and know it. All of them. As followers of Christ, gospel carriers, there's no place for discrimination. There is no place for favor. There is no place for preference. There is no place for privilege but mercy. And herein lies the message from Matthew. Lord, thank you for allowing me, a sinner, to experience your mercy. It still amazes me that I would even be tapped, that I would be, even be considered by you for anything worthwhile, that you would even want to recline with me and have uh, that kind of koinonia, that, 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 that intimate fellowship that you and I share. But I, but I just acknowledge that it, it's all you and none of me. Like you initiated every bit of it, and I have never been the same, and I've never looked back, and I thank you, God. I thank you so much that, that forgiveness is real, that your love is real, that mercy is real. Not only that, but that it's powerful, that it changes things. Because I'm also not the guy I used to be. And that's, that's your doing, too. So thank you just for being faithful all the way around, and thank you for what you have for us, what you've shown us in such a story as this by calling people like Matthew. In your name we pray, amen.